Well, good morning. Last day of 2023. Can you believe it? Wow. <clears throat> so, as uh, Zach said, uh, today we're going to do what we call Grace Talk. And, again, these are questions that have been submitted by you, the congregation, in various forms. <clears throat> and we put to, together these questions, and each of the fellows to my left have taken some time to go through the scriptures and help us maybe understand them from a biblical context. Um, but we would encourage all of you at all times, if you have questions, uh, to give them to us. I mean, that's one of the DNAs of our church here is that we want questions. We, we don't think there's any an- question that shouldn't be answered, and we long for that. And ultimately, um, as an elder team, it's important for us that we know what we believe, why we believe it, how to live it, and how to share it. And so questions and answers like this are helpful in that context. So... How this works is each of the guys have one question. I'll ask that for them, and then they'll give an answer for it. There may be some repartee back and forth, some clarifying questions. But ultimately, we hope that you will be edified and that God would be glorified in what we do today. So with that, why don't we go ahead and, and move forward. We can give the first question to Pastor Ken. He may be up on the screen here. And Ken, as you know, did a series of sermons from First Peter, and the question I think is relevant to that. Uh, question number one, after looking at First Peter 2 with Ken, is it reasonable and acceptable hermeneutic to look at the passage of Scripture and say that it does not apply to us any longer because it was written to the church at the time, and therefore the application of the principles found in the text do not translate to our current world or culture? Ken, how are we to make sense of that? Brief answer is no. Okay, good. Okay. Next question. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For the most part, it does apply. And I'll say for the most part, because you always have to parse that out. And really, this speaks to biblical interpretation as, a, as an art form or as a science. Um, a lot of times, we're tempted to take specific examples and draw from those specific examples broad principles. And really, when you're looking especially at, at uh, the epistles, the letters that are written to the churches... It needs to be done the other way around. Always the overlying or underarching or whatever, underlying overarching, thank you. Underlying overarching principle is the teachings of Jesus. And I think that's kind of baked into this person's question is that do these principles that we draw out of the specifics apply? And I'd say, let's turn it upside down. What are the principles that are uh, universal to everyone and then let's see how those specifics are drawn and see if we can draw those same specifics. And so that's why I want to kind of take a look at it. Maybe it'll become more clear to you as we work through this. Um, remember, the uh, Peter's whole point in this, in writing this letter, is to say, this is who you are. God has made you a certain way. He has made you holy. He has drawn you out of the world. You are holy by God's doing. And so therefore, he gives the people who are the readers... A list of imperatives. So it's first is the indicative. This is who you are. And here's the imperative. This is what you should do with that. This is what you should look like. And essentially the, imper- the indicative is you are holy. You've been made holy. And the imperative is now act like it. Act holy. And some examples in, in chapter 114. He says do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. You can see that this is um, a, an imperative based on that indicative that you're holy. And the application of that principle is universal across all ages. It doesn't change from one culture to the next. We should all uh, avoid conforming to the evil desires we had when we lived in ignorance. 
That's a no-brainer. Chapter 2, verse 1. Peter says, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Again, a universal application. I don't think any of us would argue against that. The principle is, you are holy, be holy. 2.11, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Again, a universal application. 2.12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Now we're getting into a little bit more specific occasion. There's a certain circumstance was going on at that period of time where unbelievers were accusing Christians of wrongdoing. Now you can say, all right, well, under their circumstances where they were being accused of wrongdoing, we might be able to say that that doesn't apply today. But I would say, no, it's becoming more and more that way now. We are actually experiencing very much that in our time and probably will be even more so as time goes on. And the application, therefore, is just as important. It's universal. Uh, And the application is based on the principles of Jesus as taught, for example, in in Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And then later in verses 43 and 45, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, you are holy, here's how you act holy. And the reason you act holy, the reason you love your enemies, is so that people will see that you are children of God. And that's what Peter is saying. You bring glory to God by the way you treat your enemies. You bring glory to God by the way you deal with people when you're being persecuted. Continuing, therefore, with that specific application, Peter says in 2.13, submit yourselves to the Lord's sake for, uh, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Why? Because government authority structures are instituted for, by God for our good, for peace, order, and justice. And the opposite is anarchy or anti-authoritarianism. And this is counter to God's established order. It's not the way you live a holy life. Do not push against every form of authority, you're supposed to submit to authority and save those rare times where you have to push against authority for when it really is threatening the very mission. And this is, this is important way to, to look at it. And the other reason that he says to do this is so that it will silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. There were people saying in those days, Christians are subversive, Christians are anti-authority. Christians are bad for our culture. And this ignorant talk, Peter says, is counterproductive to the mission and must be silenced. And it is done not through fighting and not through arguing, but through living holy life and doing good. Which is so counterintuitive in many ways. Counterintuitive to me. I like to fight and argue. But sometimes you just have to take the, the persecution that's coming to you, recognizing that that may be the way in which God is working on that person. And you have to be very selective in when you push back and fight back. I'm not saying lay down. I'm certainly not saying that. Peter then says, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Well, we don't have an emperor, Does that, therefore it doesn't apply. No, it does apply. We have an, a constitution. 
And so therefore, because, uh, we should, because we have a constitution, we need to honor the constitutionally elected or appointed government officials. It's, it's what you're supposed to do. It's the right thing to do. And because of government authority structures, even those who are morally corrupt or harsh are instituted by God, we need to submit to them for our good. And we need to do it to silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So as time goes, and more and more of this ignorant talk is going to be around us, we need to look at this principle of submission and doing good and honoring as a way to silence ignorant talk and not immediately going into fight mode. That, that would be my answer. What is it about us that wants to go in that fight mode? Is it I mean, a lack of understanding of this difference between the indicative and the imperative? Or is it just um, the way in which we're created and we, we I say fight? it's my flesh. I, w- I, I want to fight. I would want to push back. And I, I agree wanna, that it's, yeah. and I agree it's Ken's flesh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I think that, as he says, all of us have it in us. I think that there's something, and I don't know, this is kind of a bit esoteric, I guess. I think that as Americans, we're competitive. I think we're unusually competitive. I think that we are, you know, we forge our path, and people get in our way, and we don't like it. We've been uh, enjoying freedom for so long. Anytime somebody begins to encroach on that, um, we're, we're ready to go. I think certainly the advent of social media where you can say anything you think about, which is a bit of a plague. Um, the idea of if you have nothing good to say, don't say anything at all has been lost. Uh, the idea that because you can say it to the world, it has value, has been embraced. Um, just because you can tell a lot of people what you think doesn't mean what you think has any value. You know. But we have to always examine our, our hearts and our motives, too, because am I doing this because I just don't like authority in general? I don't want somebody telling me what to do, yeah. right? If I'm, if I'm operating out of that mindset, then I probably need to check myself, right? Or, or is this a specific instance where the Bible would say I'm called to resist? And I think right? sometimes... And so the, an anti, uh, an, an in-general anti-authoritarian mindset is not... A Christian mindset, right? Because God instituted authority. And I think sometimes we can, in our flesh, think that, well, I'm standing up for what's right. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, being belligerent must be right because what I'm standing up for is so right. Mm -hmm. But there's a methodology to it as well. There's a disrespect. You could be absolutely right, but the way you're presenting it is so wrong, no one's going to hear you. And And I was going to say, I think that's part of Peter's point. When we, in the church history class, one of the things we look at is, the early years of persecution under the Roman Empire, and a lot of the charges levied at Christians by the Roman citizens and Roman government is that they were they were unpatriotic because they wouldn't worship the Roman gods. They they they're you know anti the emperor because they wouldn't worship the emperor. These kind of things, and they shouldn't do those things, right? They can't worship the emperor. But I think what Ken is saying is you don't want to add fuel to that fire, right? You don't want to give them other reasons to point to you and say, hey, these guys are are terrible citizens. Um, Because they're going to do that anyway. And as you say, it's getting worse and worse. We're getting to the point where if you believe the things that Christians believe or that even the normal people believed five minutes ago, um, you're, you know, you're this terrible person who is, hates everybody. You know, I I also think deep down, maybe we question the power of the gospel Mm -hmm. because, you know, I I teach the people in our evangelism class and the mission team. You know, we, we are to persuade. And so we learn techniques for how to persuade people. But ultimately, the power of the gospel is God. It's the Holy Spirit. And 
you know, I was, I was brought to the Lord through people giving me decent arguments and good things, but ultimately it was the, the Holy Spirit changed my heart, opened my heart to accept the truth that Jesus died and was resurrected and what that meant. And we sometimes think that we've got to come up with a way to defend everything that is, that is good and right with argumentation or with pushing back against it, thinking that that's how you're going to fix the situation. When in fact, the gospel and proclaiming the, the goodness of God, the holiness of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is going to have an impact on people. It may not have an impact on the entire culture. Uh, I know that there's different arguments back and forth as to what is happening in our culture and whether it should. And that's not my point. My point is that you have, an, uh, you have the obligation to proclaim the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus through your life and through your words and let God do what he's going to do with that power. You know? So just because we can doesn't mean we should. And it's always not matter what we say in some sense, but how we say it. So those are some good guidelines for us. Yeah. Anything else that we can... And, and I think we can always speak truth to the culture, to an individual, to whoever, but we always want to speak truth in a way that yeah. is honoring to God and doesn't defame his name before unbelievers, which is another thing that yeah, passage Yeah, you can be... Yeah. You can speak... The, the message is going to be offensive enough. You don't need to be offensive yourself, right? right? All right, let's go to um, question number two for Pastor Dan. If we are forgiven for our sins and the blood of Christ has covered the transgression, should we ask for forgiveness today? Could it be offensive to God and a slight against the work of Christ uh, and forgiving us of all of our sins? Listen to me well on this one. Um, it can be. The entire argument hinges on if you're a Christian, what do you mean by uh, asking God to forgive your sins? Because if you're forgiven for all sins, past, present, and future, and if you have the belief that I have to keep up with my sins, I've got to confess my sins in order to stay in my salvation, I've got to do that. Uh, it is offensive to God. Very clear. It's incredibly offensive to God. You're effectively saying that Christ was not enough. Now, that leads us to a question, though, is then how do I, I deal with my sin? How do I understand my sin? The key here is understanding the distinction between justification and sanctification. Our justification, our being made righteous in the eyes of God, is based on the faith that we have in Christ. So that it is His righteousness imputed to us so that we are clothed with an alien righteousness. It's not our own. It's Christ's. So that in my life, I can never be more forgiven than I am when I've trusted in Christ. That is our identity. Now, our identity is secure. We move to sanctification. I will be mourning. I will have a penitent heart. I will have repentance. I will have a brokenness. And matter of fact, as I go through my life, that should increase. I should grow to understand my sins in ways that 
I've never had before. And it's not the mere action of my sin. It's the fact that I'm supposed to love God with all my heart, mind, and soul. And I don't. It is much worse, and I grow into the realization of how much worse it is. Now, we come to the fork in the road. How do I deal with that? Do I ask God for forgiveness? Well, I would say this. If you have a settled understanding of your justification, and you say, God, forgive me for that, that's absolutely appropriate. But if you think that God is forgiving you on the basis of you asking that, and that you have to tally up your sins, and at night you have to confess these, and if you don't confess them, your fellowship with God is hindered or broken or lost, that's wrong. So you could say, uh, I'm sorry, how could I have done that? Please forgive me. And if you understand your justification, you are mourning appropriately over your sin. That's a sweet thing to the Lord. Because what that does is that draws you close to realizing what Christ has done for you. And you'll find in that moment this uh, sweet clash of I'm so messed up. I'm so wrong. Please forgive me. Thank you that you have forgiven me. It's amazing your gift. And you'll find that happening. And you'll actually find that sin, when understood appropriately, actually propels you forward. It propels you forward to go, man, I want to be more for you because of what you've done for me. Look at my sin and yet look at how you've treated me. Look at how you've cared for me. Look at how you provided for me. And that actually is the propellant, you could say, the fuel, the gospel, the justification of our, our souls is the fuel by which that we seek to insulate ourselves from sinning against God in the future. Now, with that, I want to quickly jump into a passage. If you turn over to 1 John, and I've, I've posted a blog uh, last night on this, so I'm not going to go through all of it, but I have... Uh, posted um, kind of an exposition of this passage. First John is written, uh, verse 4, that your joy may be complete. Verse uh, 13, chapter, chapter 5. Chapter. Chapter 1. Uh, chapter 5, that you may know you have eternal life. So those are two kind of bookends in the letter of First John. Four particular things that John is aiming at to accomplish in his teaching in pointing out wrong teaching. The first one is how you view sin. Now notice here in the first verse 5 here, it says, God is light in him, there's no darkness at all. It's a metaphor. John loves using this metaphor, the idea of purity, light, righteousness, holiness. All of those things are conveyed. But then he uses this um, if-then kind of comparison in verse 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. If we. The idea is, is not that he's including himself, but... He says, if we, you and I, if we think this way, then we are either a Christian or not a Christian. And he does that all the way down through. And so he uses the if we to go, hey, if this is how you think, this is who you are. If this is how you think, this is who you are. All the way down through. Luke verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if this type of, this group of people, and he'll compare three, if somebody says that they have fellowship with God, but they live in darkness, in other words, the pattern of their life is evil or wickedness or sin, he says, you, you lie in this passage. You do not practice the truth. The idea is that you're not a Christian. 
If you're somebody that says, I can do anything I want and I'm okay with God, then he says, you fail. That's the first group of people. You could say the first degree even. Now, the question would be, okay, well, what happens to my sin then? What happens if I am a Christian? What happens to my sin? I say, no, the pattern of my life is to trust the Lord, not trust myself. He says this, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Look at this from God's point of view. Anytime you sin, what happens to that sin? The blood of Christ cleanses you instantaneously. Using the metaphor, just like when you there's light on in a room and darkness comes into the room, what happens? It's immediately vanquished because the light overcomes the darkness. Darkness can't come where light is. So that transitional action, the idea that if you're in God, God is light. Anytime evil comes into your light, what happens? The blood of Christ, just like light does with darkness, overcomes it. Now verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is the second group of people that he's talking to. First group says, I can live any way I want. This group says, I used to sin, I don't sin anymore. So somebody's gotten to the point that they've transcended over being a sinner. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You're just deceiving yourself. If somebody comes to the point, they go, I used to sin, I don't sin anymore. They're wrong. They misunderstand what sin is. Now, verse 9, which is the most famous verse to push the idea that I've got to keep confessing to keep getting forgiven. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice that verse 9 is right after verse 8. And that's, how that works, right? And that's the point. <laughs> the idea that somebody used to sin, they don't sin anymore. Verse 9, what would be a posture of a Christian? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The idea of if we doesn't mean conditionally we need to do that as much as if you find yourself confessing your sins, if that's who you are, and we should be as Christians, we regularly saying the same thing about our sin that God does, homologio is the word, is that if that's the pattern of your life, confessing your sins, guess what he's doing? He's faithful and just to forgive your sins. In other words, real Christians confess they still sin. This is not Christ. You can no more in fellowship than I can throw Brett Goodell across the auditorium. Christ is the one who's keeping you in fellowship. Now, I understand how people talk about the idea of fellowship is dwindled down to kind of a potluck supper, people getting along. But that's not how John is using in this passage. Real Christians will be confessing. Then verse 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. See that the third degree. Verse 6, verse 8, verse 10, the final one is we don't sin. We've never sinned. Our issue is not sin. Verse 6 is I can live in darkness and it's okay. Wrong. Verse 8, I used to sin, don't sin anymore. Wrong. Verse 10, I've never sinned. And then verse two, chapter 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you. You may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for only ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, you have an advocate in the courtroom of God who pleads your case uh, that he is sufficient to satisfy the righteous demands of Christ. 
There are righteous demands of, of God, his holiness. And he has paid for your sins and taken your sins away so that you can have comfort in that. Do not sin. What does that mean? Trust Christ. Trust Christ. And when it comes to your understanding of your sin, it should get worse. As you grow in your faith, you might think, man, I'm worse and I'm worse and worse. That's absolutely natural. Look at Romans 7, 14 through 24. That's exactly, 25, that's exactly what Paul said over and over. And that should make you meditate on what God has done in the gospel and justification. It's key what you brought out, um, the, the back and forth that John does. And he uses a Greek term, aeon, mm. which is, it's not the same as the if-then that we're used to. For example, if you have a key fob, nowadays cars, you don't turn the key, you, you just put your foot on the brake and push the button and it starts. So from a very mechanical standpoint, I can say, if you have a key fob in your pocket, and if you sit in the driver's seat, and if you push the brake, and if you push the button, the car will start. That's a very mechanical approach to how to start your car. But what John is more likely, is more saying with this construction in Greek, which kind of gets lost in the English, is if you're among those people who are lucky enough to have a key fob, you don't have to turn the key to start the car. It's more of a a broad-based if. And then he's saying that here is if you're among those who confess that you're a sinner, you are those who are being forgiven by your, of your sins. You're, you're showing yourself to be those who are forgiven as opposed to those who are, who don't do that, who don't regularly acknowledge that they're sinners. Mm. Yeah. And I think we have to acknowledge too, that we can certainly as Christians do things that displease God and and we should recognize that. And confess that. But I think the key thing that you said is it does not impact the relationship. I think that's the big thing. It's not about our justification, right? We don't get unjustified when we sin and have to do penance or do some kind of extra but work then again, we to can, get back. Right? We can't find ourselves, um, like in, a, in any relationship, if you're in having a, a, a time of animosity with your spouse or with your kids, there's a... There's a, a break, if you will. There's a strain in the relationship, but it doesn't stop you from being married. It doesn't stop you from being a father or a mother or a child. The relationship right? is not broken by it. It's not broken. Yeah. It's strained. And there's, a, there's something there that... But a, a good family, you could say, if you're a good family, there will be a reconciliation. There will be a repair of that. And it's kind of the expectation that we have in the church, right? If, we're, if we love one another, we will reconcile with one another. We won't go and uh, just push past it or start calling people names or, or allow division to maintain, right? So <clears throat> it'd be right then to say that the forgiveness we ask uh, is the basis of our justification, but there's a continuing heart that has to ask for forgiveness is, a, is the fruit that we really are saved and it's what helps us in our sanctification? Would that be an accurate sense? No, I would say this way, the person who's confessing that they've sinned is a fruit. The idea is I can say, please forgive me God, but I would say to the Christian, what do you believe when you say that? In other words, do you believe if you don't say that, you're not forgiven? That's offensive to God. And you see that places like uh, Ephesians 1-7 where he talks about 
the riches of his grace, he compares his riches with the amount of forgiveness. In other words, he has all riches, he has all forgiveness. Colossians, and you were dead in trespasses and in circumcision of your flesh, God made alive to get together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. In other words, if I in my mind think, well, I've got to do this, I've got to keep up with this, you are becoming a self-styled savior. You're effectively becoming a Roman Catholic without the priest. Uh, you're doing a, a personal sacramental thing. And I, it's, a, it's a hallmark of two things, maybe immaturity, but certainly bad teaching. Uh, in which people don't get into the context. And I think that some people just want to unburden themselves. Whether you repent or not. Yeah, and you want to unburden yourself. There's this thing that, understandably, we want to go, I've did something about this. Right. You know, I've, I've said. But what happens is, is people, when you actually talk with them, you say, okay, you asked God to forgive you. Did he forgive you then? Well, it depends if I was sincere enough. Well, how do you know if you're really sincere? And how do you know you're confessing all your sins? And then you drop the bomb of Matthew 22, that you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. In other words, have you done that today? In other words, you're much worse than you realize. Uh, and so it just, it doesn't work at all in the New Testament. It just doesn't make any sense. How, how does that and manifest think, itself, though, uh, in today's church when we think about the challenges maybe people have with, I'm not good enough, or my relationships are being affected by the fact that, boy, I always have to come back and repent again and again. Do we, do we see this manifest in a negative way? And what can we say to those folks to say, hey, don't think of yourself that way? Well, I, th- I mean, just speaking from personal experience, when I was much younger, I thought the way Dan just described, right? What, did I, was I sincere enough when I asked for forgiveness, right? And that is a very stressful way to live. And so what normally happens is you either are in this constant tension of stress. Did I really, was I really sincere enough? Did I get all my sins confessed? Or you begin to change what sin is so you can meet the standard and not feel stressed all the time, which is a bad place to be because then you're, you're beginning to say, well, that's not really a sin. That's not really a sin. Just overt really bad things are sins. And so, yeah, it's, 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 it's not a healthy way to live as a Christian. And um, you, you know. begin to associate Christianity as what I do mm-hmm. versus who I am. And so even the, to Ken's initial question was the idea of, as I start living in the imperatives, I start, I don't do this and I do this, I don't do this, and Christians do this and non-Christians. And what happens is you start really believing that it matures to the point that you go, when you see somebody doing something like going into a movie, this is probably a strain that's not here, going into a movie house, you go, oh, Oh, they're wayward because they're doing something I wouldn't do. And what I do is what Christians do. And so you see these tentacles start kind of growing out and start creating these uh, legalistic frameworks that you start imposing on everybody. That's often born out of that idea of performance. And very often that kind of mentality is rooted in this self-styled gospel. I've got to keep myself in fellowship. And it's incredibly tiring. And so that those are the options you change the standard, you change who God is, or you just walk away from church. And that's the heresy Paul was dealing with in the book of Colossians. They had a system, taste not, touch not, handle not. And he says, oh, it has the appearance of spirituality, but there's no power to um, restrain the sensual appetites that you have. And it all becomes out of my own power to do. And it, it 
it takes you away from relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, which I think is key, is yeah. if you think that you're going to well up this power from within to do all these things and to follow Christ, then you're sadly mistaken. If you're not giving the Holy Spirit the power and giving him the credit and following and keeping in step with the power of the Spirit and growing and becoming conformed in the image of Christ through the power of the Spirit, not through yourself, you're going to continually struggle with this. Yeah, and that, that speaks to a great point. If you, if you equate Christianity with do this and don't do this, all you have is a, the standard, that legalistic standard. There's nothing inherent within that that will enable you. It just identifies what's right or wrong in your mind. However, if you re- remember and recognize what Christ has done for you, and you say, why would I want to do this? Because of what Christ has done... Because he's shown me that that's sinful, that's wrong. That's not what God wants for me. So that's where that power of the Holy Spirit comes in. The Holy Spirit wants to make much of Christ. And so that's where you start seeing that victory. He doesn't make much of your understanding of right and wrong. See the distinction. He's not interested in empowering your radar to know right from wrong and kind of discern who's right and wrong. He's really interested in making much of Christ. So when you find your satisfaction in Christ and you say... In order to be satisfied with Christ, that means I don't want that. Why? Because to want that is to not want Christ. That's when the Holy Spirit comes in and goes, I love that. That is a huge distinction that uh, many people kind of find find they're getting bogged down if they don't understand that. Absolutely. Thanks. All right, let's move to question number three for Pastor Larry. Uh, could Leviticus 18 be viewed as ceremonial law, as foreshadowing the union with Christ and the church? If so, why should you not disregard this as you would the other ceremonial laws regarding clothing made of multiple materials? Okay, thanks. This is a really good question. I think this is a really important question for us to be able to answer um, from the Bible in our day. This is one of those issues, going back to question one where the culture is going to look at your position on this and say that if you think the way that Christians are called to think about this, you are a bad person. <laughs> You're a bad citizen. You hate people, etc. So we need to be able to, like Brett said on the front end, understand what we believe and why we believe it. So let me, let me run through this um, in a couple different ways. Um, I want to start with just an overview, just to think about this from sort of 30,000 feet and kind of logically even, start with an overview of what does Leviticus 18 forbid. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but here's some of the things that it forbids. It forbids male-female sexual relations with of various kinds, mostly close relatives. Um, it forbids same-sex sexual relations under any circumstances, right? There are no exceptions. Um, it forbids sacrificing your children to idols, Um, And it forbids sexual relations with animals, among other things. So here's the thing. If we can disregard one part of that, and and let's be honest here, this is is done in service to trying to baptize homosexuality, right? This argument is designed to try to um, sanctify homosexuality and say that it can be a lifestyle that can be inside the church and be honoring to God. So if we can disregard the part about homosexual relations, can we also disregard the parts about sacrificing my child to an idol or about having sex with an animal, right? Are we free in Christ to do those things as well, right? You don't ever hear anybody, at least so far, um, arguing that, right? Um, So we need to, I think, for starters, realize that this argument is very often very selectively applied in service to a particular agenda. Um, 
when you look at the Levitical laws, you really have three choices. Um, all of it applies today. None of it applies today. Or there's a mixture. Some does and some doesn't. Right? And, and here's, the, here's the dirty little secret. Everybody does the third one. Right? Everybody does the third one. Uh, the question is, where do you draw the line? Right? Um, even the most, and again, like I say, not yet, but even the most pro-homosexual theologian that I have seen out there is not arguing Christians should be free in Christ to marry their dog. That hasn't come up yet. Okay? Um, so that's, that's for starters. Um, another thing we need to look at is the kind of law that you're looking at. And this is kind of how you begin to draw that line. Right? There, there are generally three kinds of laws in the Old Testament. There are civil laws for the nation of Israel. There are ceremonial laws for the people of Israel, which governs how they worship and relate to God under the Old Covenant. And there are moral laws that apply to everyone. And um, the last category, the moral laws, applies to all humanity at all times because it's ultimately rooted in God's character. It's rooted in who God is. It's reflected in the created order. And, those are, and the created order is reflected in the Ten Commandments, revealed in the Ten Commandments. God doesn't lie, right? So you shouldn't lie. God is faithful, so you should be faithful. So the question then is, how do we tell the difference? How do we decide where we draw that line among these Old Testament laws? And for the purposes of this discussion, I'm just going to talk about the moral versus the ceremonial because that's where the question is coming from. Um, and I want to look at it from the perspective of there, there's lots of different ways you can break Scripture up um, era-wise or time-wise. And I want to break it up this way for the purposes of this question. I want to look at the time before the giving of the law, so before we even had the laws given in Leviticus and things like that, after the giving of the law, and then after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And if we find something in all three of these eras that is forbidden by God, I think we can pretty well say that it is universal and applies always to all humanity. Okay? Um, not just to the Old Testament nation of Israel as a ceremonial thing. So let's look at before the giving of the law. And to do that, I looked at Genesis 19. Genesis 19 is the familiar story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what you see in Genesis 19 is that the nation of Israel did not yet exist then, right? So do you, if you want to use biblical language, it was still in the loins of Abraham, so to speak. Even Isaac was a chapter or two from being born at this point, the child of promise. Um, God didn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because they ate shellfish or because they mixed fabrics, okay? God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for rampant sexual immorality that violated his character for their idolatry. And he holds all humanity accountable to those standards. Um, now, one of the arguments that you get is that, well, you know, it says in, I think it's Ezekiel, that, well, Sodom and Gomorrah was, it was lack of hospitality that God destroyed them. Well, sure, that was one thing. You can look at the things that were going on there, and you can certainly say that was not very hospitable, right? But we have some specific things in Scripture that tell us why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. In the New Testament, Jude verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So it's clear that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was because they were rampantly and unrepentantly and idolatrously violating God's sexual ethics as reflected in his created order. Okay? So after the giving of the law. Well, we just looked at that. Leviticus 18 is obviously after the giving of the law. Um, but one thing I want to point out here is when you look at this passage, you see that 
God is not only talking about this with regard to the people of Israel. He's talking about this with regard to the people in the land that they are conquering, the pagan nations that they are about to overthrow. Um, In verse 24, it says, and 25, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these, meaning these things I've just talked about, the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So God's, or Israel's conquest of the promised land, yes, it's God um, fulfilling his promises to Abraham, but it was also to mete out his judgment on the people in those lands who their judgment had reached at this point full measure and God was ready to, for lack of a better word, lower the hammer, right? He's ready to judge those lands for the things they've been doing. And the things they've been doing are they've been worshiping idols and they've been indulging in rampant sexual um, immorality, perverse sexual practices. Um, And you see in verse 26 that God even expected the Israelites to hold accountable the foreigners among them for these things as well. He says, you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. So it wasn't just the people of Israel for ceremonial purposes to whom this applied. Um, So fast forwarding then to after the coming of Christ. So this sexual ethic carries over into the New Testament as well. Paul makes it clear regarding homosexuality in Romans 1. And he also speaks about sexual behavior with close relatives in 1 Corinthians 5. Um, Those are fairly familiar passages. I want to look at one more passage. Um, Because one of the first controversies in the early church was what to do with the Old Testament Jewish ceremonial law, right? Should Gentile converts to Christianity have to go through these ceremonial things like circumcision, which was primarily the issue, um, in order to become Christians? Do they have to come into Christianity through Judaism or could they come into Christianity directly? Um, And so some Jewish believers had gone to the Christians at Antioch who were Gentiles, and they were telling them the latter. you got to come to Christianity through the Jewish ceremonial law. And so the Jerusalem Council that we're familiar with met in Acts 15. They rendered a judgment on this. And their conclusion was that Gentile believers did not have to keep the Jewish ceremonial laws. And they sent them a letter to that effect. Here's what that letter says, starting in verse 28 of Acts 15. Um, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So you see here that the apostles are even not including sexual ethics, sexual moral commandments in the boundaries of the ceremonial law. These are things that even these Gentile Christians have to avoid, right? Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, you have to avoid sexual immorality. So I think the bottom line when you look at it is you you just can't make a case that this is something that was specific to the Old Testament nation of Israel for ceremonial cleanliness purposes only. That these laws um, reflect the created order that we see in Genesis. They reflect the Ten Commandments that reflect God's character. And they're something that we are required to abide by um, until he returns. You can make a case that none of those were ever really taken away. The ceremonial and the civil mm-hmm. are kept in Christ. And kept in Christ, right. They're kept in Christ in that, in that he fulfilled all that was necessary of those ceremonial and civil laws in order to bring about the redemption 
that God had planned from the beginning, but it is also kept in Christ, like for example, our Sabbath. He is our Sabbath rest. He is keeping Sabbath, if you will. And so they, none of these things were ever taken away, and even the Jerusalem Council wasn't picking and choosing what ceremonial laws to bind onto the, gen, onto the, onto the Gentile believers. They were simply saying in these circumstances where there is a rampant idolatry and we're going to be, people are going to be confused on that, eating meat sacrificed to idols, et cetera, et cetera. We say this is how you should conduct yourself. Mm, but no. definitely the sexual immorality, I mean, that's a, like you're saying, it's a slam dunk. It's a given. It's every, mm. it's a universal mandate. Yeah, and you find that. I mean, you're talking about the, the, the idolatry thing. You find that throughout history, particularly homosexual behavior, is very intertwined with idolatrous worship. Mm-hmm. Um, it, because it is such a rejection of God's design and created order. And sexuality yeah. has yeah. such a spiritual element to it mm-hmm. that I think people don't realize they turn it into some kind of mechanical animal type of, of, um, right. of Behavior. Uh, instinctive thing when it is actually supposed to be a beautiful picture of a spiritual relationship. Right. Yeah. One, one question here. So, Larry, this argument about shellfish mixed cloth is not just... Um, dedicated to those that would support the LGBTQ thing. But it's a common objection I think we see from other people as well. So maybe this is a a question for all of you. Why is that? What's the motivation behind pivoting to this argument? And how can we then engage in a conversation with them from an evangelical standpoint to share the gospel? I mean, I think when, you know, our, our heart um, always wants what it wants, right? And so if I have a particular sin to which I am, in bondage, or to which is my proclivity, um, I have two choices. I can humble myself before God, I can admit that it's wrong, and I can seek to change through the help of the Holy Spirit. Or I can go to the Bible, if I still want to call myself a Christian, I can go to the Bible and I can start trying to find ways, loopholes, right, that will allow me to continue to behave like I want to behave. Um, and I think that's what's happening there. It's and your initial, shelf, you know, your, your number one thing that uh, mm-hmm. I can change mm-hmm. I think that's where it breaks down. I don't think people believe that God can change them. No, they don't. And, and they and, don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Right. And sadly, even in the church, you see that. Even many in the church have bought into this idea of an unchangeable sexual orientation, believing that there's a lot of things the Holy Spirit can do, but boy, he can't do that. The Bible very clearly says, yeah. such were some of you, but you have been transformed. You have been changed. Change is real. It really happens. And there are people in this church who can attest to the incredible change brought about by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, let me just read that. that uh, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so we would never say that people don't change. People change all the time. And it is the power of Christ and his gracious gift that when we see that, we start, even when we're meditating on it, the truth of the gospel, it starts to change us. It starts to say, I have hope with the God of creation. So therefore, I have hope in my life. I have hope, whether it's uh, sexual tendencies, whether it's telling the truth, whether it's the fear of man, caring so much for what people think, and somebody think, well, I could never change. I'm just, con-. no, no, you actually can. Because if he has changed you in, in your orientation with himself, that's the greatest change possible. Now, are you saying that your sexual proclivities are greater? He wants to do that more Born than this. This, this is where you're going to, this is your lot in life. And that's why people who take their lives, the ultimate self 
aggression is that, that I can't, I can't be any more than I am. And that's, if God exists, that's not true. And he does. Yeah, and the, and the whole, I mean, that, that's the whole, the whole transaction or whatever that happens at, at conversion, at justification, is God, through the Holy Spirit, changing our desires, right? We stop desiring the things of this world, and we start desiring the things of God. We stop desiring our sin from the point of finding it attractive. doesn't mean we, we don't still feel its pull. And we start desiring God. And so the Holy Spirit is in the business of changing our desires. And none of those desires that are sinful are off the table. Um, that's, that's, I think, the issue. And there, there are people, again, in, even in the church, sadly, who want to take this one thing and they want to set it aside and say, well, this desire can't be changed by the Holy Spirit. He's not that powerful. And but sadly, we have church others. leaders who yes, are fueling right. that. Yeah, in, indeed. Sadly, we do. Well, yeah, let's right. just be, I mean, even from our seminar. That's the thing, the, the stuff at North Point. Yeah. yeah, North Point does that. So Andy believes that people are born, some people are born homosexual. And so therefore, to ask them to be something other than they are, be heterosexual would be wrong, and some people can't be celibate. Now, you might say, well, Dan, you're bringing Andy up. How could you do that? Well, because I've talked to him about it, and we've talked about this before. He believes that. He will never tell the church live. He will never make that statement, and we've talked about that as well. I said, you know, why won't you tell you the church? And he said, some things you don't say with a microphone in your hand. And I said, don't you think that's incredibly duplicitous? And he said, no, that's good leadership. So... There you go. I mean, the, the bottom line is that he and, and those that believe like he believes have bought into the world's ontology where sexual orientation is concerned. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, it, that it's like being female or black or Asian or that it's just an innate characteristic that is morally neutral that you can't change. Right. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches. Right. Yeah. Any more thoughts or comments on this one? Okay, I think we're good. So um, on this point, and I think there may be some copies out uh, in the um, uh, foyer out there. Back in the summer, we did that conference on sexual identity. I think there are paper copies on one of the tables out there. So Yeah, in the involvement area. And actually, on February 10th, we're going to be doing uh, Alan Schleeman from Stand to Reasons coming in. We're doing a one-day seminar. Because we know that you can say, well, I don't believe it's right. But then my family member goes that direction, or I know somebody. So how do I actually work this out on February 10th? And he's coming in for a one-day seminar on a Saturday to kind of walk through. Again, we'll go through the biblical case of identity, sexuality, and how do you engage at the appropriate level with a family member, a friend, a coworker, etc. Because we know this is a difficult. You want to be right, but it's a very, very charged emotional situation. So again, February 10th, be looking for that. Yeah, he um, is part of that Stand or Reason ministry. Yeah. Great, Greg Kukul, many of you know who that is. And I think he actually attended the North Point um, yes, conference that was did. there. And He did, yeah. and, he, yeah, and he, they he, have a podcast that right. he, he talks all about it. Right. It's really so he, good. He's, a, he's a good resource there. So, yep. Well, great. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much. We appreciate the hard work that you put into it. And as I said, I hope that you have been edified here. So I think what we'll do now is close the service out. If you'll join me in prayer, we'll, we'll get you on your way. Father, we are thankful for a chance to come together once again to worship you. Father, we thank you for the great music, Lord, that uh, stirs our heart for affection for you. Lord, may that never change and may it only continue to grow. I thank you for Ken and Dan and Larry for the hard work they put into um, um, answering these questions uh, for us from a biblical standpoint, Lord, but also from the heart of a real pastor, Lord. Our, our charge here is always is to uh, encourage you in your faith, teach you in your faith, and encourage you to share that faith. And Lord, as we enter into a new year, Lord, may we be resolved on many things, but Lord, may we never um, cease to be resolved to knowing your word more, 
uh, to loving you more, to being more holy as you have called us to be. And Lord, may may we be resolved to share the gospel with those around us more and more. So Father, I ask you with each person here today, Lord, that they may go in your peace and your grace. Lord, that they may enter the new year full of hope and promise and that they would glorify you in all that they do. I ask this in your son's name. Amen.